Welcome to the Innovation in Government show sponsored by Kerasoft. Each month we'll talk with industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Now here's your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to Innovation in Government, I'm Jason Miller. My guest today is Joel Jackson, the Senior Director of Emerging Product Sales for Red Hat North America Public Sector. Joel, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, let me set some context for our discussion. The general acceptance of cloud and the implementation of DevSecOps culture is opening doors for the next evolution across government. The use of microservices and automation are helping agencies move faster, more efficiently as they develop software and services with their vendor partners. The Food and Drug Administration, take them as an example. One of the first agencies to take advantage of microservices and move away from what they called a center-centric support model to one where there's teams focused on products or capabilities. Another example is the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service. They're leading the way with automation. USDIS is deploying code through an immutable process to get that code into a cloud environment on an hourly or even daily basis. And over at the Homeland Security Department, the CIO's office is building something they're calling a cloud factory. The idea will support the ability for agencies to build, test, deploy software, code through the DevOps approach and quickly improve operational and mission applications. These are but just three examples of how agencies are taking advantage of new development techniques to celebrate their IT modernization efforts and open the door a bit wider for innovation. And that's where my guest comes in. Once again, Joel Jackson, the Senior Director for Emerging Product Sales at Red Hat North America Public Sector Group. You're going to tell us about how cloud, automation, microservices, and other processes are underpinning federal IT modernization efforts. So let's start at maybe the beginning. We've talked about DevOps for quite a while. We've talked about microservices for a couple of years. Where are we at, if you will, with these concepts? Are they part of the culture? Are they becoming part of the culture? Give me a sense. Even a couple of years ago, I was on with you guys about microservices and how that was a, a new paradigm shift, if you will, on how to develop applications. So. Uh, instead of developing a very large monolithic application, hard to change, kind of use the waterfall approach for that, which has been uh, around for a couple decades in the federal government. Now you move to a very agile, sprinting microservices where you break up that monolithic application into a, you know, maybe a couple thousand microservices. And then if you need to change, you just change one of those microservices instead of trying to change the entire thing. So I think that concept, microservices, is, um, I would say, well-established. It's not a... It's not a new concept. Uh, you know, there are some customers that are looking to explore in that, but I would say the majority have already, they understand what it is, they just don't know how to uh, implement that inside their, their agency. So I think the biggest challenge now when it comes to microservices is the culture part. It's not a technology problem. Uh, there's a lot of tools. Red Hat has tools that help you enable uh, microprocesses and develop and give you guardrails to make sure that you stay within those lanes. But yeah, changing how the federal and state and local governments develop software culturally is, uh, is a huge problem. And it's probably the biggest area that uh, we spend our time on is, here's how you become a Netflix inside of you know, a federal agency or a state and local agency. And here's the type of developers you need to have. Here's the type of processes and controls that you need to have and tooling uh, to help you with that cultural change. When you talk about culture change, is that because people have to understand how the DevOps culture, the microservices work? Or is it more of, wait a minute, I have to stop doing this waterfall approach or I have to know what I'm going to get up front? Like, what's the culture that has to change? Yeah, I think, I think everything that you just said. So even from, let's start from the beginning on planning. You know, DOD is a great example. They take five years to plan a system. That just isn't realistic today. By the time that gets out and you go through the waterfall uh, deployment or development, 
by the time it gets to the warfighter, it's kind of an obsolete, and you might have to change it 100 times, so what do you do? So instead of doing that from the process of implementing or the start of development, you want to have a sprinting capability right off the mindset on how you're going to get features into a product from the get-go versus how do you change features after a five-year waterfall development approach. So that's the first part, I think, is the planning. That's, a, that's difficult for the federal government because they... A lot of them still buy the way they buy tanks and ships, which is, you know, very long lead times and very little change. There's certainly some agencies, uh, you know, like DHS, uh, some, some in DOD that are doing very, very well at this. Uh, and they're, they're implementing some, some agile approaches to enabling microservices into their development process. So, you know, from the planning part to the development part. And then operationally, I, I think that also requires a lot of cultural change. You know, how do you maintain systems that are changing faster, right? You've got all these certifications typically that, you know, the monolithic applications used to have to go through. And if you're just changing one component of that now, do you have to do, you know, different certifications and stuff like that? So there's a whole gamut of cultural change, I would say, from the inception of a program to how you operationalize it and sustain it when it's in production. So the whole, it's not just a cultural change on the development part, which I think is your point. It's, it's, the, it's the cultural change across the whole life cycle of an application. And now we're starting to hear about this new concept, or I'm not sure how new it is, called uh, Kubernetes. It's a, it's a concept that I think has come up uh, time and again, but explain maybe what that is and then how that kind of relates back to this idea of microservices. So Kubernetes is a technology. It was developed inside of Google and taking it a step, couple steps back. So you, have, you had uh, containers that became you know, um, all the rage on the scene maybe three or four years ago. And it's conveniently, people left off the first word of containers. It's a Linux container. So when we talked about containers, which was the ability for developers to spin up sandboxes of development environments really quickly, and they were portable. So that was a very cool concept that took off. All of a sudden, you had, in a development organization, you would have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of containers floating around your your IT system. So the next big challenge was, okay, how do I manage all these containers and orchestrate them. And lo and behold, Google open sourced this thing called Kubernetes that they had built for uh, how they did and managed their, their containers. And I think they had a stat that they used to do about, they would spin up and kill about 3 billion Linux containers a week at Google. So the scale that they had is, was really impressive. So. Uh, obviously, the market reacted, okay, well, these guys probably know what they're talking about for that. So they took this open source project called Kubernetes. Red Hat quickly jumped on that. We were the first, uh, besides Google, to really jump on that and product- productize a enterprise version of Kubernetes. And so now Kubernetes allows you to orchestrate all these containers. It's become, a, I would say, the de facto tool for uh, managing and orchestrating uh, you know, these containers that are everywhere. And the containers, just really, I can interrupt real quick, is are these microservices in many ways where as I'm building a software tool or a citizen services and each of the functionalities that I need can be in a container and that's where that's the management part. That's fair, right? You 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 would have a bunch of you would have microservices inside of containers and they would you would orchestrate them with Kubernetes to meet the overall mission of what your application was supposed to do. So Kubernetes is uh, again I think a couple years ago we were one of the we were, we're the number two commi- uh, committer to uh, it's an open source project so Google's number one we're number two. Uh, and we are product, we productize the first enterprise Kubernetes solution. It's called OpenShift from Red Hat, and that is the Kubernetes is the de facto standard. So now you see everybody moving to a Kubernetes-based solution. Uh, even hardware partners, all the public cloud providers now have a Kubernetes solution. 
because it can be the one thing that stays the same while everything else changes, which is you know, a lot of the promise that Linux gave back in the day where you, know, you could write your application in Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and you could swap out your hardware partners, whether it's HP, you know, Dell, what have you, whoever gave you the best deal. That's kind of the promise on Kubernetes too, is if you write your applications to a Kubernetes layer, uh, let's say called OpenShift, and then you might be able to compete your cloud provider uh, in the future because the, the public cloud providers are becoming, you know, they all have different use cases. And they're, you know, Google might be a great use case if you're developing an AI or an, uh, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning app. Um, Amazon, obviously everybody knows what they're doing with their cloud native stuff. So when you're building an app, you might want to target a different public cloud provider. And writing it once to Kubernetes, a, a, a platform like OpenShift, allows you to move that to different cloud providers without re rewriting all your code. And that's the reason behind that is because you're taking that container and you're just the old lift and shift, but in, in a good way. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the, the, I think the evolution of cloud is find a PaaS, a platform as a service, then you know, that's your new application development. Lift and shift your current stuff that can be moved over to your PaaS, and then you're going to automate the rest. So those are the three you know, steps we see a lot of federal agencies wrestling this with. How do you get to cloud? You know, those are the three types of things. You buy a container platform, uh, you start developing on that as your new stuff, then you lift and shift what you can, which is what you just said, over to the uh, container platform, and then you try and automate the rest they can't get over. I want to definitely go down the path of cloud, but you also brought up automation. And where does automation fit into the microservices and, and Kubernetes discussion? You want to automate what you can, but you obviously have to be careful on, you don't want to automate dumb things, right? So if you make mistakes, you don't want to automate that. Uh, you know, from, from an automation perspective, it started, I think the, the big rage was around server automation, now it's a network automation. So you have all these infrastructure level automating tools. Uh, we have one called Ansible that is probably our second hottest product that, and it's around server automation, network automation, so you can take the humans out of the loop for installing you know, all your software on servers, which used to take a long time, uh, and the same is applying to the network side now. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the software-defined network that that's, we hear a lot about, and then automation comes in during the microservices too, where we're automating security checks, or we're automating certain requirements to say, does the software meet a certain set of requirements or standards for the code level? Is that also where you guys are seeing some automation? Yep, that's right. So, you know, whenever you have, when, when you can automate checks, like to your point, security checks or configuration checks, I mean, you, you look at a lot of the hacks that happen out there in the, in the public commercial world, usually it's because they didn't update a system, right? Maybe they didn't update a browser or they just forgot. And it was on the list to do it, but they just didn't get it done. Maybe there was a human in the loop and it just took too long for them to get to it. But automation allows you to get this out and patch stuff really quickly, security, configs. The ability for automation, uh, not just in the IT world, but automation even in the you know, consumer world is going to be a really big deal because you can, you can get a lot of stuff done quicker uh, with a lot less humans in the loop. You brought up cloud earlier because one of the things that Kubernetes and containerization allows you is to take, well, you've developed under cloud A, you want to move it to cloud B, it, you can lift up that container and move it to the next cloud. And, and that actually fits into the broader discussion about the reason why we can talk microservices, why we can talk containerization, is because of this broader acceptance to the cloud. And really, it, it, I'll even go down the path of the move to hybrid cloud. How has the cloud opened that door for, for all this kind of we'll call it emerging technologies that's not so emerging anymore. Right, so I think it all started with um, Linux. Uh, if you look at the cloud providers today, 
the big three public cloud providers today, what's the one OS they push more than anything, including Microsoft's public cloud? It's Linux. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's proven, it's enterprise reliable, it's secure. So if you're, if the benefit of having a Linux platform be the number one default choice for the public cloud providers and everything that we've done with Red Hat on the enterprise side, on the on-prem side with Linux, that's a big win for containers because again, containers are Linux containers. The ability to have applications be portable starts with Linux, moves on to containers because it's built on a rock solid foundation like a Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And then you can move that application around to different cloud providers, whether that's an on-premise you know, cloud that you've built with Red Hat or you know, some of our competitors as well, or you go to run the application on the public cloud, whether that's Amazon, Google, or Microsoft. Usually you're using a Linux container or workload. And it, there's a lot of benefit to that, uh, that the container uh, ecosystem gets that the Linux uh, ecosystem gives it. At the same time, agencies and other organizations are not going to solely be in one type of cloud, a public cloud. And there's, there's going to have that right. hybrid. Right. So, so that also allows the, that, if you will, the organization, the agency to have a foot in both uh, sides. Right, right. We think, yeah, if you, if you take a look at an application, you could take Netflix, for example, right? They started on Amazon. Great for them. They, you know, they've obviously maxed out every sing, single thing they can do on that. But what if they wanted to take advantage of a machine learning or an artificial intelligence you know, workload? Maybe Google has a better solution on their cloud. So that's, you know, do you want to have a multi-cloud experience? And that's one of the things that we push is do you want to have a multi-cloud experience plus a hybrid cloud experience? Let me just define those two for a second. So multi-cloud is, you know, for us is to have our software and experience as a user be the same across multi-cloud. So if you're going to use a, a public cloud A versus public cloud B, if you're using our software, we want it to be the same experience. If you get into the hybrid cloud world, which is what we see, um, and probably one of the reasons we're being acquired, probably the number one reason we're being acquired, that's the ability to use a workload on-prem and also in the public cloud, and how many workloads are going to stay on-prem versus how many are going to go into the public cloud. And there's there's a lot of competing theories on that. Uh, you know, the public cloud guys didn't even believe in hybrid cloud or private cloud as of three years ago. Uh, but we think it's certainly got a lot of legs, and you can see which way those guys are investing in. They're they're all coming on to a hybrid cloud uh, sales motion, uh, and they're they're even building hardware in people's data centers, which was unheard of three years ago. We're good on that point. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. We are at a time of unprecedented change to the approaches and technologies used in deploying cloud architectures. Hi, I'm Paul Smith from Red Hat, the most trusted open source software company in the world. Open source is the best approach to ensure you maintain choice, flexibility, and affordability through community development. Learn how we can help you benefit from open hybrid cloud technologies. Visit us at redhat.com slash gov. That's redhat.com slash gov. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Joel Jackson, the Senior Director of Emerging Product Sales for Red Hat North America Public Sector Group. Now, Joel, before break, we were talking about this, if you will, the state of DevOps, DevSecOps, whatever we're calling it these days. Right. We brought up this term Kubernetes, which I think is, is growing in popularity. Is this actually happening though in the federal market or in the public sector more broadly? Give me an example, a case study maybe that you can, you can highlight. From the microservices perspective, we've got a couple of good ones there. 
you know, without using specific examples, we've got a large metro transit authority in the uh, northeast, very, very large city that is using microservices to redo their mobile application for how you even use subways and, uh, you know, transportation up there. So they're using a Kubernetes-based solution to give them those guardrails on how to develop in a very quick, you know, and modern sprint, I would say. In the federal space, we have a lot, actually. There's, so on, I'm almost thinking there's not even a cabinet-level agency not looking or having invested in a Kubernetes-based platform. We have some really good examples on the, um, you know, I would say the law enforcement side, if I had to pick a vertical for it, where they've broken their application, monolithic application, into about two to 3,000 microservices, transformed their, their agency into a, you know, a waterfall shop, if you will, into a more agile culturally agile shop and that has not been easy it's you know we've probably been on year three of that contract working with those guys but um it's uh it's absolutely a real thing it uh provides a ton of value when you can you know push out features to the either the warfighter or the citizen in a very fast way I, i think we all have experiences on you know i wish we could get something faster from our from our either local you know federal or state uh uh, agencies that we interact with on a daily basis. So Kubernetes is absolutely real. Uh, OpenShift is our platform for that, and it's uh, it's our fastest-growing segment of our business. It seems like two to 3,000 microservices seems like an awful yeah. lot, but maybe that's just on the surface. Do you, how does that compare to other clients, other, no, other examples? It ranges. Uh, your mileage may vary based on the application that you have, right? So uh, a smaller monolithic application is going to obviously have low, uh, a lower amount of microservices usually. But the, the whole point there is that um, it doesn't, there's, no, there's no hard and fast rule. There is probably some correlation that can happen. If, we, you know, if you called us and said, hey, show us your application, and then we took a look at it, we can probably give you a rough, at, rough estimate of what it would entail microservices wide to break that thing apart. And that's the benefit of, of a pop platform like uh, OpenShift because it's managing those two to 3,000. Yeah, that's so, right. So, I mean, could you imagine if you had, you know, you always talk about, we, we talk a lot about apps rationalization. Right. And, and I just actually recently did a story on a survey from the fourth, around the, on the fourth estate within DoD that the DoD CIO and DISA did. And they said, okay, we're going to look at all applications and see where they should go. Public cloud, private cloud, mill cloud, right. stay on premises. And one of the big benefits was we realized we had you know, seven learning management systems across the fourth estate. Right. And I think yeah. no one manages that, but it sounds like this is one of the benefits of using Kubernetes is this idea of you now know what you have and then you can share more easily. Well, it definitely makes you, forces you to inventory what you have, which is always a big challenge. When, when you get into the scale of DOD or some of these agencies, it is something most people have not seen before. It's, it's not trivial and it's not easy, but... Uh, but yeah, I think once you once you do that, and, and again, going back to if you can at least draw the line in the sand now and say, I'm going to build my new application. So stop doing it the old way now. At least it gives you a new application development platform so you can do that today. And then spend all, you know, there's going to be a lot of time figuring out what the lift and shift stuff goes to. But, it, you know, stop the bleeding today as far as doing it the old, the old way. Uh, I think you can get a lot of benefits out of just doing that, even if you can't move any of your applications over, which you should be able to. But there's there, there's definitely some applications that are probably going to stay in a certain silo for decades even. It, they just can't move. Do you get a sense of how many agencies or how many of your clients are truly doing agile DevOps or how many are talking about it, but they're still kind of in some kind of hybrid world of the waterfall DevOps? 
Everybody says they do DevOps. Of course. <laughs> but if you go to the and, IT dashboard, you right. can see 70%, 80% of so, so and so's projects are yeah. in the waterfall, are out of waterfall. But I've so, talked to people, and what does that really mean? Yeah, we, we have this joke. Wait, you, you can buy, you can be sold DevOps, but you can't buy it, right? Because <laughs> there's, the, and, and there's, there's, you know, that's part of the vendor community there too. But, you know, I think DevOps is this, um, it is a cultural change. From my experience, very few have done it. There are some that are absolutely good at it in the federal space, but most have a different opinion of what it is than when you get in there and show them how this is the real way to do it. So they have an idea of what it is, but they're really not, you know, they might just apply some automation technology and say, okay, I have, I have DevOps. That's not really, they haven't changed their culture. They haven't, you know, changed the way they've, they've planned for releasing software and, uh, you know, the deployment life cycles. And when it comes down to it, the goal from your perspective, from a lot of, uh, I think, the people in the industry who see this working, yeah. you mentioned Netflix, that's a common sure. one that people like to point to as, as a DevOps culture, is this really does lead to the broader benefit of innovation. I mean, if you can put these pieces in place, the containerization, the Kubernetes, the microservices, all working within a cloud, again, private cloud, public cloud, maybe doesn't matter, that can lead the path to quicker change and more innovation and better right. services. And, I, and that's the key here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Netflix is a good example because I like to use it because everybody knows it. They've usually seen it. They, and most people probably, maybe most people don't know that it does run 100% on a public cloud. So they've been able to build out and scale out a very broad, large application across a very large user base. But it brings up a good point. You know, when we sell stuff to a customer, you know, if we just take, Let's use a plain analogy here. Um, might make the most sense. We're selling, you know, with OpenShift and these Kubernetes, these technology parts that we keep talking about. We're we're selling you the ability to build the plane. You still have to know how to build the plane. Right. And sometimes you can come to us or a system integrator. We'll help you build the plane. But then what? You actually have to fly the plane. And that's where I think you know uh, the confusion on um, you know what DevOps is really takes place. You know, vendors, we can sell you guys tools all the time, and that. You know, but that doesn't let you become a DevOps culture. You haven't changed your culture on how to use that tool set. And uh, you know, the plane analogy is actually a pretty good one because when you toss the keys to you know someone and they've never flown or even taken lessons to fly a plane, um, that's kind of dangerous, right? So you know, the same things apply to when you get some very you know cool technology like Kubernetes platforms, like OpenShift and and some of these other uh, products like Ansible. They're very very powerful, but someone needs to show you how to fly these. Now, whether that's a, you know, a system integrator or Red Hat itself, that seems to be where it happens with us. We usually go in with a system integrator and we, we show the, the customer how to fly the plane. At the very beginning of our conversation, I brought up this idea of how all this is leading to IT modernization, helping agencies kind of get rid of technical debt, a common term we've heard. Give me a sense of why that, not just the culture change that needs to happen, but why does using these approaches help agencies get out of that debt, help the agencies really provide better services. Get your new development process onto a more modern platform. Even if you just do that as a federal agency, that's a great starting point. To be able to you know, bring in a new modern concept, you know, tooling like OpenShift, Ansible, some other, some other products where coupled along with a DevOps approach is a great way to start a new modern development methodology inside of a federal place. Now, to your point, you still are, you have this technical debt still out there. You have these old, you know, applications that, you know, may or may not be able to move somewhere. Most likely, yeah, I think you'll probably have, 
you know, maybe the 80-20 rule where you're, you're going to be able to move a good amount of your, you know, monolithic applications to something. But you probably have, you probably still have 20% of your applications that are just, they're just not going to go anywhere. So there's your technical debt. And then, you know, that's agency by agency has their priorities on how they deal with that, whether they, you know, decommission that and start something up, you know, at the same time. So they build something at the same time as they're taking down the life cycle of a you know, a technical debt application. But I, I think starting with a new modern platform and getting into the DevOps culture is one of the most important starting points for an agency these days. And I think we're seeing that happening. Again, it's just, it's a slow roll. When you talk to agencies, what's the biggest obstacle from to make that change? Whether it's a culture change or whether it's it's a technology change, what what do they have to do? What kind of questions do you get from from your clients? How do they move to a more agile environment when all the rules for them are not on agile environments, yeah. right? So I think they're, they, how, do you, how do you get around that? And there are certainly ways to do that because there's, there's some good examples of people doing this. Well, but there's, I, think, I think one of the things that agencies too often, they sit back and go, well, the acquisition system doesn't work yeah. until they are shown the example of an acquisition of someone using the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulations, and making it work. And I, I think too often that, that that's an easy... Well, I just can't do it because the oh, acquisition easy, system. Yeah, yeah. Right, I agree. The, the acquisition doesn't make it easier for them, but it's certainly not, you, you can certainly get around it, and not get, get around is probably not the right word. You can certainly get through it. Work within yeah. it. You can work within it. And it's, uh, I think it is changing, though. I mean, all the way top-level CIOs, they get it. They want the features out there faster. They, do, they don't want a five-year waterfall process. I think they all understand that. It's just, and it might require a couple waivers that you, need, you didn't get before, but that, that's not usually a big deal these days. Uh, Joel, this has been a great conversation so far. Uh, we're just about out of time, but a lot of agencies are listening to this and they're going, okay, great. That's great to talk about it at the 50,000 foot level. What do I need to do? How do I move forward? Because I think, as we've talked about, some agencies are further ahead, some agencies may be further behind. I think you mentioned nearly every federal agency client that you talk with, that you work with, it has, is thinking about or starting to use this idea of Kubernetes containerization. So what kind of advice do you have for them? Where, where do you, and, and where do you see them needing to go, you know, three, five years? My biggest advice would be open source is a fast moving, and it is the de facto development environment now. I mean, there's not a lot of proprietary development going on uh, that is giving you the innovation like Kubernetes and Linux and, you know, you just go down the Hadoop. All those were, Linux, I mean, I'm sorry, all those were open source development models that were built. So I would say, don't, you can't do it yourself, right? I, you know, I remember four or five years ago, we would go talk to these folks that were building their own open stack. Now they're all, they've done that, they've, they've quit that, they're doing, they buy a vendor. Whether you buy Red Hat or, or someone else, that's fine, but buy and talk to people that actually know how to embrace and build enterprise features around the open source community, because what, what you'll end up doing is if you try to build on the pure open source community, you'll lock yourself in and, and the pace of, change is, is super fast. You won't be able to take advantage of features. So I think get professional advice from a company that knows how to navigate the enterprise open source waters because it's, it's fast moving and it changes all the time. Uh, Joel, this has been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So uh, let me thank my guest, Joel Jackson, the Senior Director for Emerging Product Sales at Red Hat North America Public Sector. Joel, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Jason. You've been listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I've been your host, Jason Miller. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search innovation. Thank you for listening to the Innovation in Government show, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com, keyword innovation. As agencies move to cloud smart, they're quickly realizing that their destinations aren't solely public, private, or community clouds. It's often a combination of all of these. Hi, I'm Paul Smith from Red Hat, the most trusted open source software company in the world. From cloud first to cloud smart, you don't have to worry about guessing right. Red Hat has you covered on all four footprints, physical, virtual, private, and public cloud. Learn how we can help you benefit from open hybrid cloud technologies. Visit us at redhat.com gov.